From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here, why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Welcome to episode four of The Body Myth. Thank you so much for being here. Before I get to today's guest, I want to share some of the answers to question number four on the body image survey that I'm running. Over the last few episodes, I've shared some of the respondents' answers to the questions. Can you remember how old you were when you began judging your body? What, to the best of your recollection, made you begin to criticize it? And how many times a day do you think about your body in a critical way? Question number four, which I'm going to be sharing some answers to now, is do clothing size numbers affect your mood and how? So here are some of the answers. Yes and no. European and Asian sizing use different numbers, so I don't fret about those numbers being higher. But I do end up in a rotten mood if my standard brand of jeans becomes snug and I have to look at a higher size. Yes, they make me avoid shopping or trying on clothes unless I'm confident no one is around. Yes, the smaller the number, the higher my mood. The larger the number, the lower my mood. Yes, I've been a size 2 to 4 my entire life. The last two years, I've been wearing a size 6 to 10 to the point where I don't go out anymore. A bit, it is more about how I look in my clothes. Sometimes, but I've kind of given up on that. I've been known to cut out size labels and or take a Sharpie to them. It depends, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I'd rather be in a smaller number. Trying on clothes and finding they don't fit affects my mood. I avoid shopping because all the stuff I like don't fit. And plus sizes clothes are too big for me. I am size 16, which is right in between. If I'm above a 14, I think I'm disgusting. They can make me sad or angry, but I mostly don't think about them. Nope. Yes, I'm afraid to try on bigger sizes for fear it will just keep on going. No, not as much. If my, quote, smaller pants get too snug, it makes me immediately feel guilty. Yes, I feel anxious and sad when I have to wear larger sizes. Sometimes, I try not to pay attention to that. Not anymore. The change for me came when I got my body to a size that is satisfactory and appropriate for me. I still link this to being more attractive, although I'm working on separating this from how the clothing fits and feels. Yes, if I have to go for a bigger size, I get upset. If I can fit into a smaller size, I'm happy, but then immediately doubt the accuracy of sizing because surely I'm bigger. Yes, my goal has always been a size 4, but I've never gotten there. 
If I have trouble fitting into anything above a size medium or eight, I feel really bad. Yes, the inconsistency across brands makes you feel out of control. Being so tall and developing curves early in life made shopping experiences miserable. Being poor and not affording, quote, good jeans that came in tall sizes made me ashamed to be tall and like I was an inconvenience to shop for. Having a long torso meant no single-piece swimsuits fit correctly and consistently I had wedgies. The inconsistency across brands and sizing and lengths made shopping infuriating. They once did. I went through plenty of ups and downs in my relationship to size, but it's much easier now to stay balanced mentally no matter what scale or size. Yep, I feel shame if the numbers are too high. Thank you so much for those answers, and I look forward to sharing answers to the next question in the next episode. And now to introduce my guest for episode four. Today my guest is Dahlia Kinsey, Dahlia is a queer black registered dietitian, keynote speaker, the creator of the Body Liberation for All podcast, and author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal your self-image, and achieve body liberation. On a mission to spread joy, reduce suffering, and eliminate health disparities in the LGBTQIA and BIPOC community, Dahlia rejects diet culture and teaches people to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool to counter the damage of systemic oppression. Welcome, Dahlia. Thank you so much for having me. Every time I hear that read, I'm like, what am I doing to people? That is so long. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's not that long, but it's important because I think it really sets up the work you do and who you are because you're not, I mean, you don't have a ton of company in this space or am I wrong? And you do. You're totally right. I mean, registered dietitians in general, it's a pretty homogenous group in the US. Almost everybody is very thin, very white, generally young if they're at the forefront and then the people who seem to be the most established and have power and bigger practices are all like baby boomers. So (laughs) not a very diverse group of people at all. Not at all. I have so many questions about that. And I remember when we first got to talking a couple months ago, uh, you talked about your experience in academia, like your experience coming up as a dietitian and what your program was like. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? It was really difficult. By the time I was finished with my studies, I was so exhausted emotionally. Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was even the area I wanted to work in at all. Mm -hmm. And I just continued working where I was in HR for an entire year before I decided, you know what, I did originally actually want to do this. Mm -hmm. I was just tired. It isn't that this isn't my path anymore. But Mm -hmm. the experience was isolating and draining. So because the program was so not full of people that looked like me and not full of people dedicated to making the space welcoming, Mm. it was constantly an issue, the fact that I was in the minority there. And a lot of people would make assumptions about Black people while I was in the room Mm. and then have no interest in hearing my perspective. And not only do I have the lived experience, but because I'm very interested in things that affect black people, Mm -hmm. I also have a lot of experience reading 
research related to how health intersects with racial identity, in particular in the United States. But you would have thought that listening to me was just a preposterous idea to have someone in the room who is studying the same in, in the same area of study as you and who loves research and who is actually having the lived experience. But still, my opinion was meaningless. So I just felt like I was being ignored constantly, but then also used as a prop. So oh. the school I went to bills itself as diverse and urban. Like those are the key words they use in their marketing. And when they would come out to photograph people in the nutrition sciences area, they would always want my picture. And I was all over the website. Mind you, I was frequently the only person mm -hmm. of color in the room, but my photo was always taken. And <laughs> just little things like that irked me so much that by the time I was done, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Mm. And, and had you had any idea that this might be what you faced when you went to the program? And how much of it had you been able to anticipate? I was totally caught off guard because, because of how the school advertises itself. Mm. The first two years of my undergrad program, it felt like the whole diaspora was there. You know, there was so much diversity, so many international students. It was on the day that I started the core of the program. So you apply, of course, to get into the school, but then for this specific program of study, there's another application. So even if your grades are fine, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get into the nutrition program. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't even considered the possibility that the demographics in that program were going to be so different from the rest of the school. Mm -hmm. Right. But the first day that I walked into the classroom, I felt like <laughs> the air was being sucked out of the room. I just felt like I was in shock, where did everybody go, was oh. what my gut said. And I'm used to being in multiracial environments. Of course, I was raised in majority white cities because this is a majority white country. So it's not like seeing a room full of mostly white people is going to shock me or like I'd even register it. But there was no one else of color in the room. And that was such a departure from every classroom I had been in until then, and also the girls in the room kind of had a homogenous look. Everybody's body was about the same size. People were kind of reading as middle class. You know, you didn't see any mm. split ends. There was clearly nobody in there who was very lower class and white. So even that was strange. Wow. And I just felt like, oh my God, what did I do <laughs> when mm, I walked right? into that room? How many years was your program? It was just two after the basic, you know, general studies the mm -hmm. first two years. So it's a four-year degree. But after you complete that four-year degree, you have to do at least 1,200 hours of supervised practice. So some people do that by entering a master's program where you study, you know, book studies part of the time. And then you're at hospitals and dialysis centers doing your supervised practice. Or while I was that age, you could still just go do that supervised practice in a program that's just an internship. You generally have to pay to participate in those two, and they're pretty much full time. Mm. But the path that I chose was through public health. So I took a little bit longer to do it. It was more like a 14-month commitment than one year. 
Mm-hmm. And I worked part-time at the same time. Right. So you're already very tired and you're trying to earn your degree, but then you have this other real energy suck and mental health suck. And I would imagine, is it correct to say that their areas of focus and interest and the studies they would bring to class and the reports that you were that were being shared were very different from what you would be interested in? Definitely. And the things that I thought I was going to be studying and what we actually studied were so different. I thought it was going to be more metabolism, more looking at the whole body in a holistic way versus just the way it was. It just, the depth wasn't there. And it felt like even when they were talking about clinical things, they scratched the surface and then went into kind of generic wellness stuff that you could pick up anywhere. Mm. I mean, there were some really good medical biology types of classes, but that wasn't necessarily degree specific because there were lots of classes where the pre-med students were there and the nursing students were there. Mm -hmm. The classes that were just for the dietetic track, it wasn't what I expected. And it absolutely was not trauma-informed and... It just was not in any way inclusive. It Mm -hmm. didn't acknowledge the existence of other people in terms of income, in terms of natural body size. Like not everyone is meant to be a size six. Humans are very diverse and that's a good thing. But looking at the program, you would think that everyone is supposed to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of makes me wonder about the, inf- I know you've written a little bit about this, about uh, the body positivity movement and the influencers when it comes to rejecting diet culture. And I really want to learn about this from your lens. You know, I have interviewed in the past some advocates for health at every size. And I, I noticed that the people that came on to my other show, they were white women and they fit a certain type, a couple of them. And you know, I don't want to make a judgment or exclude, but I did ask at the time, you know, how does this message come across out of you and from you and to the people who follow you when you're a person who seems not to be struggling with any kind of body size issue or be perceived as anything but thin and white in this culture? So can you just take that comment and run with it however you want? Yeah, it's interesting. I keep noticing that allies in a lot of spaces take center stage and that's their (laughs) default and they may pat themselves on the back for example say a thin person being body positive but centering themselves in movements that are closely linked to fat liberation movements so fat liberation movements are a step beyond health at every size it's validating that fat bodies are also a natural way to be a human on this planet. We don't need to demonize any type of body size and everyone should be able to celebrate the body that they're in and the environments that we live in should accommodate the fact that bodies come in different sizes with different levels of ability. Mm -hmm. And life is hard for people who are classified as disabled or as super fat, not because there's anything wrong with their body, but because the people around them refuse to set up environments in which everybody can thrive. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to do it accidentally, 
it's easy to forget that not everybody is like you. A perfect example that most people can relate to is things being made for right-handed people. Because mm -hmm. most people are right-handed. If you're a right-handed person, you probably have not noticed <laughs> that everything is set up for right-handed people. But if I'm laughing because I'm a lefty. Oh, so you know, yeah. like nothing is – people act like y'all do not exist. Yeah. What are some of the day-to-day -day things that happen like when you go to eat somewhere and the way they've set up the seeds? Yeah, or What are sure. the common – Pains. Well, I remember growing up, I mean, not having a binder, a loose leaf binder, a three ring, you know, notebook in school that didn't jab into my left hand when I was mm. writing, you know, and then I thought, well, I guess I could start it from the back and flip it over, but I just accommodated. And I, I thought about getting lefty products that, that had occurred to me, I'd heard about it, but I just, you know, I went ahead and continued getting those little indentations in my, the heel of my left hand. And so that was always a thing that I was in the minority. And so obviously I have to conform. Yeah. It's so interesting because it would be so easy <laughs> to make sure both options were available for students or for those lefty <laughs> products to be available at all stores instead of them being specialty products. I remember there was only like two left-handed scissors in most classrooms when I was in elementary school. And we frequently had more than that. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, we say this is a minority, but the numbers might be larger than we realize because a lot of people just learn to force themselves to use their yes, right hand. Definitely. I was not a very good cutter, you can imagine, with my right hand. I mean, it was just not happening very well, especially when you're young and you don't have a lot of dexterity anyway. Right. And I love that analogy that you gave. That's a great analogy and super easy to understand. So there are plenty of people who don't intentionally leave other people out, but you just tend to not notice if you're part of the group that's being prioritized or centered. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of people who have really good intentions when they go into these body positive spaces, but they fail to acknowledge the fact that not everybody's straight. Not everybody's white. And that changes your lived experience. And they don't address what the differences might be. Mm -hmm. Even in some self-help books, you can tell in the writing that they're assuming that everybody is like them. So let's say this person has straight hair and they're talking about learning to just feel comfortable when you leave the house. Just go ahead and throw your hair up into a messy bun. Well, if you have really curly hair, you know the rules that people put on people with curly hair or coil, tightly coiled hair mm -hmm. are different. Like what is seen as acceptable for somebody with curly hair mm -hmm. is not going to be the same as with straight because people with curly hair are constantly being told that to look well-groomed, you have to really make it clear mm -hmm. that you controlled what your hair is doing. Mm -hmm. So just going out with your hair in kind of an in-between state, it's not going to fly in a lot of spaces. And then also a messy bun may literally not even be a thing for your, <laughs> your hair texture. Like when right. my hair is loose and natural, it's just, it's, it looks like a fro, like a seventies type fro. The hair grows out from my head and it doesn't hang down. So a messy bun, it just doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> it's not an option. And so you said that the representatives of, I, I'm taking this from your some of your work, that the body positivity movement actually can add 
to the body image concerns of queer people of color by emphasizing cisgender, heteronormative, and Eurocentric standards of beauty, which is what we're talking about. And, and few of those body positivity resources address the intersectional challenges of anti-blackness, colorism, homophobia, transphobia, and generational trauma that are at the root of our struggles, being the struggles for the BIPOC community with wellness and self-care. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I, I think now this is the second time trauma is coming up in our short conversation so far. So please go ahead and, you know, add to that however you'd like. Yeah, it's interesting if you have a parent or a grandmother who went through a high stress period during their pregnancy, it will affect future generations. And it makes sense from a survival perspective that if there is a risk in your environment, then people who are born after you should be hypervigilant so that they're mm -hmm. more likely to survive. But mm -hmm. if your source of stress is not ever relenting, like it doesn't go down, mm -hmm. you're going to have people that are always in a hypervigilant state. So they're more prone to anxiety and depression. And if their anxiety is coming from being racialized or homophobia, then the effect that that stress in their life will have on their body will be a lot greater than maybe it would be on someone else because they came from a line of traumatized people. Mm -hmm. So like black Americans are a perfect example. And a lot of the conflicts that you see in the black community, it's just traumatized people who haven't been treated for their trauma dealing with traumatized people, you know, mm -hmm. having a lot of trouble regulating emotion, uh, feeling uncomfortable, expressing anger, because if you are perceived as angry and you have black skin, the consequences can be fatal. So you're trained to not openly express emotion for your own safety. And even if your parents don't do that consciously, if they grew up knowing that it wasn't safe to express emotion, then of course they're naturally going to train you to do the same, mm -hmm. but they also may have actually experienced changes in their body that make it difficult for them to feel safe in their body at all times. Mm -hmm. And honestly, just looking at the environment we live in, sometimes even the concept of relaxing consciously seems like a really bad idea to me. So if I'm driving <laughs> through an unfamiliar mm -hmm. area and I'm seeing, you know, all these flags that maybe are just about heritage to some people, but also could be a way that people express it, they're white supremacists, it doesn't make sense for me to just try and relax mm -hmm. and be all zened out in that moment. I have to stay alert. Mm -hmm. I have to keep my head on a swivel. And if you never get a break from that. If you're always in this state of contraction and anxiety, it wears your entire body down. So sometimes we go into wellness spaces where it's being led by a white person who isn't thinking about trauma, who isn't thinking about intersectionality, and they say, you know, just let it go. You may think, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. It's going to take me so much longer to get my nervous system to relax. And I would need so many things in my environment to be secure for me to be able to do that. So 
if I go to a gym and everybody there is thinner than me, everybody there is white, how am I going to relax in that environment? Because historically, those spaces have not been safe for me in my lifetime and in the lifetimes of the people who gave birth to me. So how am I going to relax and heal in this space if I'm afraid that at any moment someone's going to be rude to me, um, verbally attack me, maybe physically attack me? I've actually had experiences, and I was born in the early 80s, where in a gym setting, you know, I was running the front desk. This was at Jazzercise and no shade to Jazzercise. I <laughs> love Jazzercise. Uh-huh. This was in the 90s and mm-hmm. I was volunteering at the front. Someone started to, I think they were having a low blood sugar moment and they started to fall down. So instinctively, this is a person who is a little bit older than me. I ran over there to stop them from falling. Mm-hmm. And she screamed at me, get your black hands off of me. I'm oh. like, where'd she get the energy for that? I thought she was bottoming out and having a oh medical God. emergency. I'm not going to laugh with you, even though what you're saying is hysterical, because I'm just so, I can't, I'm just like, I can't, I just, I'm, ugh, I, it just caught me off guard. Yes. And because well, you're just being yourself, like, exactly. you know, when you're in the world as yourself, but then you're faced with reactions to you and danger that are because of who you are right how are you ever supposed to find that body piece or exactly you know, love for yourself right yeah and once you've gone through experiences like that multiple times maybe as a younger person I wasn't that hyper vigilant but these days I would mm-hmm. never try and help an older white person whose sh- blood sugar is dropping without them asking me for help mm-hmm. or without asking consent to touch them, you mm-hmm. know? So if I'm in a gym setting and no one has stated here, we're about respect. This is an anti-racist space. If someone is not comfortable, there is a confidential way for you to express your concern. So I don't have to fear retaliation or, you know, having to defend or prove that something happened to me that was inappropriate, which is usually what happens when you tell somebody you had a horrible mm-hmm. experience. They're like, well, how do you know? Let me just play devil's advocate. Are you mm-hmm. sure it wasn't, you know, related to something else? How do you know this was race related? Well, mm-hmm. if I didn't know when somebody had a problem with me because of my skin color, I would be dead by now. So mm-hmm. I've spent a lifetime learning what the signals are. And I just can't relax if someone hasn't established that we're going to make this a safe space. Mm -hmm. You know, going back before you became an educator and a speaker and a writer about this, can you talk about your earliest memory of being self-conscious or concerned about your body from childhood? When was the first time uh, on, you know, when it comes to body image, do you remember being self-conscious or feeling like maybe you're not right? The first thing that comes to mind is kindergarten. So up until then, I was at home. I didn't go to Montessori or anything. And I just hadn't really noticed that people preferred light skin. Hmm. But it was maybe the first day of school When the parents come with you, I'm not sure if everybody does this now, but basically the parents came in, there was 
maybe like an hour or two where they were there because a lot of kids were separating from their parents during the day for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of parents were just fawning all over two multiracial students that have very loose curly hair like down to their hip and my hair was short and natural and because I'd been out and about in the sun all summer I was very very dark more dark than I am right now because unfortunately I work all the time and I don't get to go outside (laughs) and just noticing how I was invisible and I could see they didn't know these girls so I'm like why are they so important and why is everybody Mm -hmm. talking to them and no one is talking to me. Mm-hmm. So that made me think, the thing that stood out to me is like, well, their hair is really long. Maybe people just like little girls that look like that. And deeper into elementary school, it just got more and more clear that it's about your complexion. Even black people with internalized issues with racism, a lot of times just fawn all over fair-skinned black people. Mm-hmm. and see being dark-skinned in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. And even when someone's giving you a compliment about how you are, but comparing you to someone else, that is damaging too. So I distinctly mm-hmm. remember in second grade, people saying I was so much prettier than my sister because she's darker than me. But mm-hmm. what that does to you is make you think, oh, it's this universal truth the darker your skin, the worse off you are. It didn't make me think, oh, I'm so lucky because I'm lighter than her. It made me think, oh, I my value is debatable because I'm not white. Hmm. And what about the messages in your family, the, your caregivers? What was body and size like in your household? It's a funny, impossible <laughs> mix of different messages because... My father is the American parent, and my mother is half Cuban and half Jamaican. And my grandma, I suspect, was a disordered eater. Mm. But it was always seen as, oh, she just cares about her fitness, or she's just a very healthy person. It wasn't enough to be recognized as problematic. A lot Mm -hmm. of times, eating disorders in non-white people don't get diagnosed, But then also, back in her day, I don't really think people were paying that much attention to symptoms of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So she would make comments like, oh my God, you're starting to look so American. To which I, of course, would say, well, I am American, Grandma. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not, but Mm -hmm. I am. This is the environment I live in. And yes, Americans carry more weight than people who are from Cuba. Because our environment's totally different, because we're pressured to work all the time, because we don't take long enough to eat a meal to feel our fullness. Like, it's a completely different set of factors that determine your propensity toward weight gain in the United States. And then also, why do we have to demonize this? Like, my body was exactly the right size for the environment that I was living in. So, like, you know, you don't need to harp on that, Graham. But Mm -hmm. I know she didn't mean anything by it. But then again, on the other side of the family, people were constantly saying I was too thin. So how are you going to be too big and too thin at the same time? (laughs) It lets you know it's all arbitrary and it's what you've been socialized to believe is better. I had a cousin who would literally throw candy bars at me 
because she <laughs> thought it was hysterical saying that I needed to gain weight and that I should be eating more. Hmm. But again, I was at the right size for how quickly I was growing, my appetite, the environment that I was in. It felt like everybody was out to judge or police my body. And my parents definitely tried not to participate in that. Hmm. But just listening to them relate to their own bodies sometimes in a less than positive way was damaging. Hmm. Not my mother so much, but my dad was called overweight when he was younger. And it still, I think, has made him feel more focused on his weight than he would have been had people not criticized him in that way when he was a child. Yeah. And it also, it really, when I hear stories like this, it reminds me that well before you can center yourself and ground yourself as a growing person in your interests and your own value and sense of self-worth and who you are just the way you are, you are navigating these messages. So it, it already, it's just all these obstacles. It's like people are just throwing these obstacles in your way to comment on your body and your size and what yeah. you should look like. And what you should. And so how are you supposed to even recenter yourself, right? So do you feel looking back at yourself that you took those messages to heart or do you feel like you had a little more grit than like other kids might've had or where did you fall I with your reaction? Because the messaging was so pervasive that I definitely took it to heart that I should try to control the size of my body. And the challenge was I should be thicker, but not too thick. You know, mm -hmm. the issue is you really can't exert as much control over your body size as people would lead you to believe. It's almost impossible to guarantee somebody weight loss and you cannot lose weight in spots like you mm -hmm. can't control the size of your waist only. The fact that people have been claiming it was po is, is possible for years makes a lot of people think that it is just because you've heard it so much, but you literally cannot control where the weight loss happens, mm -hmm. even if you're reducing your calories and becoming more physically active. You can try and build muscle in certain areas of your body, but you can't spot lose. <laughs> now, if you go out and you mechanically change the shape of your body with liposuction or fillers and things like that, even that does not last forever. And sometimes the body fat will redistribute on its own. Mm -hmm. So this information that we've got out there that like you get to control the size of your body and you get to control what you look like is really not based in fact. But because I heard that messaging so much, I believed it to be true. And I never avoided getting exposed to the sun. And that way my mom and dad both constantly reinforce that there's no problem with being darker. So mm -hmm. I know a lot of black kids who would not go swimming and who would not go to the beach because they didn't want to get any darker, especially people assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. And even recently, John Leguizamo, even the actor, for years he said he avoided exposure to sun because he knew that he was going to be booked more as a fair-skinned yeah. Latinx person than a darker-skinned Latinx person. Yeah, I remember seeing that and I had never thought of that, but I get it. I mean, I, I see from what you're talking about right now why, and obviously that was his livelihood and what the agencies and the producers needed from him. Right. And it's really sad when you think about the level of sacrifice 
that might have actually taken? Like, were there times when friends and family wanted to go out, hang out, you know, enjoy sunlight, be at the beach, maybe at a picnic, and he was like in a corner somewhere with long sleeves on and a hat? Mm. Like, who knows? Mm -hmm. But also, you need sunlight to activate vitamin D. So also probably took a toll on his health. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, sunlight plays a big role in their mood regulation. So it could have taken a toll there too. And to know that he... He wasn't wrong. I mean, I know some people maybe will criticize people for taking advantage of things like that. Like, oh, you're leveraging your fair skin privilege in a Mm -hmm. way that isn't, you know, revolutionary. But if you are concerned about your ability to keep a roof over your head, Mm -hmm. I cannot judge you for trying to survive. And he apparently believed that his survival and his ability to thrive and do what he loves to do and his staying out of the sun, you know, went hand in hand. I wonder if things will change for him now or if he'll feel more liberated now. I mean, I do think things are changing, probably not fast enough, but at least we're talking about these things now. Yeah, that's so true because I don't think I ever heard anybody acknowledge that in public that they Mm -hmm. were deliberately trying to stay lighter. Mm -hmm. And there is a billion-dollar industry around skin lightening, and some of these Mm -hmm. chemicals are insanely harsh, Mm -hmm. and people don't care because if your worth is tied to having lighter skin, you may think it's worth any means. Mm -hmm. You write in your book that, you know, about your book that it takes work to accept and trust and love ourselves. And I'm wondering what that work looked like for you. Really committing to going to therapy until I found the therapist that felt right for me. So when you go to therapy as a marginalized person and you go see someone who doesn't specialize in the identities that you have or doesn't hold them themselves, Sometimes you spend a lot of the visit trying to give the person context for what you're going Mm, through, mm -hmm. which is not what you should have to be doing (laughs) at your (laughs) therapy appointment. So I had to be willing to stay committed to trying to get the support that I needed, be willing to ignore other people's criticisms or judgment about people that go to therapy. You know, there's still a lot of stigma around mental health concerns. And even if you're not having any kind of mental health concern, but you want to go to therapy, you have to deal with that stigma sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it, it was that work, but it was also continuing to question the assumptions that I had and learning to be kind and patient with myself that these things that I believe that might be negative about my own identities, I didn't make these up on my own. Mm-hmm. I was socialized to believe these things. I was trained to believe these things. And maybe at some point it even served as a protection to believe these things, but not anymore. Can and you I talk can- about that? How that was a yeah. protection? I think one thing in particular that comes up is the idea that it's not safe to talk back to white people. And especially that it's not safe to talk back to white women in school that was protective because at the time when I was in school, and again, I'm an elder millennial, like a Oregon Trail millennial. I'm (laughs) not really that old, but there are countless examples of people in positions of power, usually white women, 
in the educational system where I was raised that were just brutal with their punishment when somebody black had the audacity to question them, to talk back to them, Mm -hmm. to question the assumptions they were making, to, you know, question like, well, why do you have such a problem with me wearing my hair natural, but this person over here wears their hair natural and it happens to be straight and it's fine, but you're telling me my hair is unprofessional and, you know, just isn't working with the dress code, even though this is how it grows out of my scalp. There are so many times I've seen kids be punished so severely and it was clearly related to racial identity, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't any way for them to push back at the Mm -hmm. time. People talk about the prison, I mean, the school to prison pipeline. That was certainly still in full effect when I was in school. So Mm -hmm. once people decide you have an attitude problem and you're a bad kid, the way they will punish you severely, be so quick to recommend that you go to juvie, sometimes just not saying anything and learning to just be quiet and try and disappear into the background or be considered a good one was the safest thing Mm. for me to do. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, your guard is always up, always up. And so I guess it took you a while to dismantle that. And honestly, even fairly recently, I went to, uh, it was like a wellness retreat for coaches. I did a coaching training in addition to my registered dietitian training. So I could get stronger with my client-centered counseling. Because you know how it is. A lot of times when you go to the doctor, they talk at you, not to you. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're dealing with health coaches, you're at the center. You talk more than the person who's helping you. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to make that shift from that traditional Mm, kind of Western healer who does all the talking to the one (laughs) where you actually listen to the person you're trying to help. So at that training, it was led by white women. And They were very welcoming. They were very kind. I'd known them online before I got there. But one of them, I'd already told them that I don't use any pronouns and that if they forget or that just feels really hard for them, just don't call me she. They, them would be better, but I really just want to be called Dahlia. And one person kept forgetting and I didn't feel safe calling her out on it. But it was causing me so much distress. Like it was giving me stomach aches and it was giving me headaches. And someone pulled me aside. It was a white person, a white trans person who said, do you want me to talk to them? Because Mm -hmm. they said it kept bothering them too when they heard it. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what the trigger was, but when we came back, you know, to the circle after a lunch break and they brought it up. And I kind of tagged onto that because the woman who'd been making the mistake apologized really sincerely. And that was absolutely not the reaction I expected because Mm -hmm. I've had so many conversations where I tried to explain to somebody like, oh, the thing that you said hurt my feelings or that's not, you know, something that people say or whatever. And I got chewed out Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the person started crying and saying that me pointing out that they hurt me hurt them. And it turned Mm. into a big thing where I had to comfort them. Mm. I definitely didn't expect for it to just be easy. I heard her to be like, Oh my God, I keep forgetting. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And she even made an example of it and said, you know, if you're trying to help a client and you keep doing something to trigger them, but you don't know you're doing it, your entire session with them is a waste. Because they probably won't be able to think about anything 
but that thing you keep saying that's bothering them. And then their head, they're trying to figure out, am I going to say something? Am I not going to say something? So I thought it was such a helpful way. She, she validated what I said. She apologized. And then it was like the stress left my body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I shared with them, you know, I can't tell you how much sleep I've been losing over this because it was just a five-day retreat. And I was stuck on this for like three days. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just have so much fear around challenging white women because of my entire childhood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was a really helpful healing experience to have two white women say, I hear you and you don't have to do that anymore. Like you don't have to suck it up and go with the flow. And even if there was a conflict, even if I had an attitude, even if it blew up, you have the power to get up and leave and say, I'm not dealing with this. Mm -hmm. And that was a really healing experience for me. Oh, wow. I'm so glad to hear that because that was another example of you having to go advocate for yourself, but you experienced something pretty okay and good from it. So hopefully that kind of helped heal you a little bit from some of the wounds from before. It really did. It helped me definitely feel more free in the present tense, that Mm. it maybe was more dangerous in the past, Mm, and it's not mm -hmm. as dangerous now as sometimes it feels in my body. Mm. But also in that situation, I had somebody advocating for me, already telling me that, like, if you bring this up, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. And then also the reaction was very productive and loving. And Mm -hmm. so she didn't get all upset because she made a mistake. You know, yeah. she kept the focus on me when I said, like, this hurt me. She didn't say, oh, my God, I'm so upset that you called me out. <laughs> she just really helped us move through it. It was a really good experience. And, you know, in our final few minutes, I really want to just I want to spend a little time on your book, Decolonizing Wellness. And I want you to just talk a little bit about what is in it and what readers can expect from it. And. Also, I have to know, just as a writer, when you knew you were going to write the book. Oh, yeah. That's such a good question because I feel like this has been building (laughs) my entire lifetime. Because when I was in grade school, even as early as first grade, I won a random writing contest. I enjoyed doing it. I loved it. And I loved being at the library and reading all the time, like obsessed with the library, knew all the librarians' names, <laughs> rode my bicycle to the big library downtown, which is a big deal in my small town. And I was raised during the time that everybody thought their kids were going to be kidnapped. Remember when everybody <laughs> was like hyper vigilant? The generation before me, they were all in the street all the time playing. But when they got to us in the 80s, they were like, nope, everybody's stealing children. But I thought I would be a writer and I had multiple teachers tell me they thought the same thing. But then in my family, they're like, well, that's a great way to starve to death. And like, we don't have the luxury (laughs) of that type of, you know, career. Like if you want to be an artist, that's crazy. It's not going to happen. Because both of my parents have a lot of artistic talent Mm -hmm. and it didn't happen for them because they needed to think about, you know, more practical jobs. Sure. But in my generation, I I have that capacity and that privilege, but I didn't think I did because I was still, you know, seeing things through their lens. But when George Floyd was murdered and I started feeling like I need this resource because these were things I've been talking about, but I didn't feel 
like it had to come out of me. Like I had to get the message out until I started feeling like the effects of compound anxiety and trying to take care of myself during a pandemic. And everybody online was just talking about the COVID-15. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to not die, you know, and, right. and not have a panic attack every couple of minutes. So then I realized that it was a disservice to the people around me to not put what I found to be helpful in writing and that there wasn't anything else like it available. And that even for myself, it was going to be healing to just write it all out and to start thinking about practical exercises to start feeling more safe in my body and more comfortable in my body. Mm-hmm. And so these the exercises that you offer in the book, they I know that you are taking extra good care of the BIPOC and the QT BIPOC community and that you're taking extra care of those clients and making extra space and room for them. But the book is suitable for anyone who would like to reevaluate and and revise their body journey, right? Absolutely. And I've been getting a lot of really positive feedback from white cis women mm-hmm. that doing some of these exercises and reading some of my personal story has helped them understand friends and family more. Mm-hmm. So it was multiple levels, like a resource for understanding the marginalized experience more, but then also understanding the ways in which their oppression as women even has affected the way they view, view themselves and that some of these beliefs are not helpful to us. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking that the body has to be a certain way and dedicating so much energy to trying to control the body instead of getting to live in and enjoy your body and using it as a vehicle to have adventures and do what you want to do with your life. The book really is about putting you back in charge of your life and reconnecting you to your body. So there's a lot of intuitive eating and mindfulness activities in there, mm-hmm. not because I want people to feel like there are any more rules around how they should eat, but because it's something we do several times a day. It's a good trigger for trying to make a shift in the way we see ourselves and the way we see our body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it always strikes me about the, the body journey because we really can't get away from our body. We we have to live in our body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes our body is a reminder of the things that we can't do and the way we don't look, right? I mean, right. it's hard to escape. It's It's kind of like eating in that sense. Like you can't not do it. We must find a way if we want more peace to live with our bodies exactly. that is kinder, right? So. I mean, we could continue to live in a way that's cruel to ourselves and distracting and, you know, harmful, or we can decide that our body is here for us to live with. <laughs> so exactly. how do we live with our body, right? Exactly. So, uh, there are so many people who don't think about how complicated some people's relationship is with their body, who will just tell you you have to love it all the time. But that is kind of coming from a place of privilege that could be ableism Mm -hmm. creeping in or it could be anything really. There are some people who for good reason feel like they're at odds with their body who Mm -hmm. maybe are never going to be like, oh, I love it here every day. Mm -hmm. But you certainly can move the needle into a more peaceful area. But there's you don't have to 
love your body and you definitely don't have to beat yourself up if you feel like you can't. I've had friends who were angry at their body because they wanted to carry children and their body won't do it. Mm-hmm. And they're even for myself, the way my autoimmune disease has changed my body, sometimes I feel frustrated and a little, I don't want to say bitter, but just like I'm having trouble accepting the now body mm-hmm. because I think of all the things that used to be easier before. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes is hard for me to accept what is. But the only moment in which you have any power is right now. You can't change what happened before. You can't control what's going to happen next. So accepting the now body is a crucial part of enjoying your life to the fullest. Yeah, I love that, the now body. Right, because I do think part of this this despair and distraction has so much to do with what we're mourning you were mourning what we might have looked like, what we used to want to look like, what we think we might still look like. Like It's just there's, you know, being in the world and seeing anyone who looks the way that we thought we wanted to look or be mm-hmm. or do can be a trigger, right? So that's so great to, to think about it that way, the now body. Dahlia, where can people find your book, find you? How can they connect with you? So the easiest place to find the book is to go to DahliaKinsey.com slash book. And it's basically anywhere books are sold, and you'll see a lot of the larger chains there. But if there's a local store that you want to shop with and they don't have it, you can just request it. If you want to get it from the library and they don't have it in, you can also request it there. And to stay in touch with me, the best thing to do is to follow me on Substack. You can subscribe for free. It's daliakinsey.substack.com. Substack is basically a newsletter service, but it's like social media without all the pressure to use all of your time there. (laughs) (laughs) So the content that I post there is useful. It isn't just like fun memes to occupy your mind. It's like a place to learn things. And also if you sign up there, you'll get a free ebook and meditation that can get you started with your body acceptance journey. Oh, great. Thank you. And I'll have links to those sites on my show notes too. And I want to thank you so much. It's a breath of fresh air to talk with you and to think about these things that I think about a lot in a new way. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning into The Body Myth. If you'd like updates, want to complete the Your Body in the World survey, or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air, please visit the link in the show notes or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find the body myth. Thank you so much for being here. 